Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined by co-host Joe Wolfond. What's going on, Cash? Not much. We are obviously going to talk uh, a little bit of news today. You know, trade might have gone down. So I was going to say, you know, I'm, I'm joined by co-host Joe Wolfond for a special kind of not really emergency pod since it's the day after, but a reaction pod nonetheless to the Pascal Siakam trade. Yeah. De- definitionally, does an emergency pod have to be one that we drop same day? Like I think we drop so. drop everything we're doing and we... Yeah. I think that ha- that has to be what an emergency pod is. This is a reaction pod in that we're going to talk about nothing else except the trade tonight. Although we did, you know, I mean, um, kind of lighthearted off the start here, but it's going to take a bit of a turn because um, we were both at the Raptors game last night and uh, emotional for a lot of reasons for the coaches, players, everyone yeah. involved, and not just because uh, a franchise icon was traded, but more importantly, because uh, Darko Ryakovic and other, you know, not just Darko Ryakovic and the Raptors community, but the NBA community and obviously the Warriors community uh, dealing with tragedy and loss right now with assistant coach Dayan Milojevic tragically passing away after suffering what sounds like a, a heart attack at a Warriors team dinner a couple nights ago. Warriors jazz game on Wednesday night was postponed. You just let me know as we were coming on that another Warriors game has now been postponed. So, I mean, understandably so, I, especially if it happened at a team dinner with everyone around. I mean, obviously terrible in any circumstance for this to happen, but for it to happen, you know, with the team present, I'm sure that adds to the shock and the devastation of it. And yeah, I, I, I don't know how they could just get back to playing within a day or two. So completely understand why games have been postponed a nice moment out of the tragedy last night with Darko Ryakovic who was very emotional post-game understandably so Dayan was one of his friends the Serbian basketball community obviously very tight-knit and uh, Darko told us in the press room that I think maybe not the first play of the game but the first ATO of the the game perhaps was actually uh, a play that he learned from Dayan Milojevic so uh, a nice tribute there, but yeah, just a pretty gut-wrenching day for anyone who knew Dayan, obviously. Anyone um, it's a part of the Warriors, the Serbian basketball community, just all around, tough day. Yeah, 46 years old, um, and by all accounts, just a really well-liked person. Coached Nikola Jokic at Mega Basket in Serbia before he made the jump to the NBA. And uh, yeah, it was definitely a, an emotional night last night, and... I mean, for the Warriors, just for like for that to happen at a team dinner, like you can't, I can't imagine the the trauma and uh, what they're going through right now. So obviously, the right call to postpone these games, and and uh, yeah, I think we're just obviously both uh, sending our thoughts out to anyone uh, who's who's been impacted by this loss. Yes, sir. All right, we're like I said, going to talk. About the Pascal Siakam trade today and nothing else. We were originally going to talk about the Jazz and Cavs, but uh, those two surging teams obviously take a back seat to this kind of blockbuster deal. I guess, I mean, by the time we actually get around to talk about Utah, they're going to be like 41-5 and five in their last 46 games in first place in the West. And then your bold prediction uh, will be further emboldened when the top four teams in the West are from the Northwest. But uh, anyway, yeah, unfortunately for the Jazz... <laughs> We still can't talk about them because Pascal Siakam got traded. So maybe we'll get to Utah and Cleveland next week or sometime soon. But we got to talk Siakam trade. The Indiana Pacers acquire the two-time All-Star and two-time All-NBAer without having to give up a single one 
of their promising young players. And they have quite a collection of them, by the way, but not a single one going to Toronto in this. We'll get to all that, break down the deal from both sides, because like I said, this is all we're talking about today. Um, anyway, I know we've got a lot of Raptors fans listening, and we have plenty, plenty of time on today's show to get to our various thoughts on Toronto's side of this. But I think we have to start with the team that actually acquired the star in this deal. And Wolfon, you wrote about the Pacers side of this. Piece just went up on the app. Download the score. Just went up this morning. Talk to me. What does Pascal Siakam do for the Pacers? What does this acquisition mean for the franchise? I mean, I think there's a reason that the Pacers have been rumored to be in this mix or at the front of this mix of teams that have been interested in pushing to acquire Siakam for the last year, basically. Because he makes all the sense in the world there. He, I think, addresses a lot of their needs and their limitations without taking anything off the table. I think he's a great stylistic fit. I think if you were dreaming up a scenario that would be best suited for Pascal himself, you know, never mind what he can do for the Pacers, but also what the Pacers can do for him. That was the number one situation, the one that made the most sense. And if you were dreaming up a center to play next to Siakam in the front court, I think it would look a whole lot like Miles Turner. And I, I just, yeah, I, I love it from their perspective. And you mentioned it, like they don't give up a single one of their prized prospects, which even with Siakam on an expiring deal was pretty surprising to me. Like, yeah, they give up Bruce Brown, who I think has been a nice player for them. And to a certain extent, maybe his point of attack defense will be missed. Maybe some of his downhill juice will be missed. But Siakam's just a huge, huge talent upgrade. And they, you know, the picks are... Two of them are coming in this year's very maligned draft. One of which is their own pick that's going to land, you know, probably somewhere between like 18th and 22nd. And the other is going to be the worst of OKC, Houston, and the Clippers pick. So we're looking at that being like the 27th or 28th pick probably. So I think you're pretty fine with those picks being out the door. The one that could turn out to be a juicy pick that we – we just can't say right now. Like it, it's easy enough to say, man, Ty, Tyrese Halliburton is an ascending superstar. So the 2026 first rounder that's top four protected is not going to burn them too badly, but we just don't know what they're going to look like in 2026. So maybe that pick turns out to be something, but I just think this is like a totally, not only a justifiable acquisition cost, but an absolute home run especially considering that, you know, all the early reporting and indications are that Siakam is excited about this and looking forward to, you know, signing a long-term deal in the offseason. So if you want to quibble about where he's at on the aging curve relative to, you know, Halliburton, he's six years older. He's only two years older than Miles Turner, who to me looks like a foundational piece of what they're trying to build. So it's not like a huge discrepancy. But I get it. He's probably like slightly past his absolute peak, you know, especially the defensive end, which we can get into talking about. And if you want to say, you know, signing up to pay that guy 30% of the cap 
for the next five years is actually not a great idea. I've got some time to hear that argument, but to me, I think he's still playing at an all-star level. I would say he's got at least two or three more years of playing at that all-star level. And those are prime Halliburton years. Like I am on board with them hitting the accelerator now, especially given that they still keep their powder dry in terms of, you know, having all these prospects that they can use maybe in future deals or just have as like cheap role players filling out the roster around what I would call their core trio right now in Turner, Siakam, and Halliburton. And especially if you consider the fact that, yeah, like they could have had some cap space uh, this summer, but like, you know, it's not like superstars are flocking to Indiana and free agency. Like this, this is a guy that you go out and get when you have a chance to go out and get him. And especially with what they had to give up to get him, I just think it's a, it's a no doubt grand slam home run. Yeah. When you mentioned and wrote about all the things and all the reasons why Pascal Siakam both fits the Pacers and the Pacers fit him and the, and all that, I was thinking, it was like, yeah, you know who uh, seems to have acknowledged all of this and agreed with all of this, if the reports are accurate? Pascal Siakam. Because <laughs> apparently... He's no dummy. Right. It's no basketball dummy. The Pacers were his preference among the teams that were chasing him. And this is why. Because he clearly saw the same fit that we do, that the Pacers see, that Rick Carlisle sees, that Tyrese Halliburton sees. Apparently, even Pascal have been talking. So that's one. Two, with respect to the contract... Yeah, if you just ask me, yes or no, do I think Pascal Siakam's on-court production will live up to the, will match the value of a full four or five-year max that takes him to age 33 or 34? Probably not. And it's it's more so in those age 33-ish, 34 seasons that I don't think the production will be in line with the value of the contract. But guess what? You've got two or three years before you get to that point. And I'm on board with you in that for at least the next couple of years, maybe three, even if he's declining, it should still be like borderline all-star level production. He is at the moment still like a top 30 player. Two times in the last few years, he has been more of a top 15 player. And he's literally got two All-NBA selections to his name to prove it. The Indiana Pacers, you know, historically, other than when they draft those guys, or in the case of Halliburton had to give up another one of those guys to get them at a different stage of their careers. Those guys don't just fall in the laps of the Indiana Pacers. They are not signing those guys in free agency. They rarely trade for them. One of them became available and was attainable for a pittance. Absolute no-brainer. Sets them up for, like I said, even if you're bearish on the last couple years of what a full-term max for Siakam will be, for the next two, like I guess two and a half, three and a half years, I think you've got a really solid one-two punch. They still have all of those young players that we're mentioning that they didn't trade any of them. Guess what? They still got them. So they're still trade chips if they need to go out and make another move. Yeah, they gave up three first-rounders. You've already explained why those three first-rounders are not exactly of the highest quality, especially the first two of them. And so the Pacers still have decent draft capital, especially once this draft this summer takes place and those obligations are extinguished. They'll have access to multiple draft picks, again, in trades, and all their young guys. They can still make another move and add a third guy to this team. There is no reason not to love this for the Pacers. Like, zero. 
Again, if you if you're not looking into it, if all you're doing is just reading the headlines, you're like, well, a three first round picks and a solid rotation player for a potential rental. I get why maybe you could say, oh, this is a risk. In terms of risk associated with giving up three first round picks, this is as close to zero risk as you could get while giving up that many picks. And then, yeah, like in terms of the fit. As a non-shooting but on-ball forward, I get that Siakam's, in general, a trickier fit, especially mid-season, um, than most stars are. But not necessarily for Indiana, for all of the reasons you outlined. I think he really complements Halliburton well. I think he unlocks some off-ball stuff and more catch-and-shoot looks for Halliburton, while simultaneously getting cleaner looks and more space himself than he has in years. He fits beautiful within Indiana's transition game, which I know you wrote about as well. I think I went to bed last night dreaming about Halliburton to Siakam hit-ahead passes. Like, it also gives Halliburton less lineups, you know, which still like to play fast, by the way, more juice and gives them a big boost of defense, defensive versatility overall. The front court pairing with Turner makes a lot of sense. I would like it even more in terms of that front court pairing if Turner were still shooting the ball the way he did last year. But as he has been wont to do in his career, the shooting has come down again this year. It's been inconsistent. But yeah, I think for the most part, opponents respect Turner's ability to shoot the ball, and that which is what which is what matters exactly. That in and of itself spaces the floor. Makes him a good front court pairing for Siakam. And then, yeah, like as far as where this leaves them, you know, they probably still don't even win around this season because it's really hard to make that kind of a leap. And I don't think Siakam single handedly fixes their 27th ranked D, which has actually been middle of the pack for like the last month, but still. Um, but they're unquestionably better. And like I said, worst case, if he leaves, they gave up one good pick in 2026 for him because I don't really believe in two late first-rounders this year in a draft class in which every scout and respectable draft expert is saying is the worst class in at least a decade. So, you know, and like I said, if he stays, which reports now indicate he is likely to, they can still do something with some combination of those players and plenty of leftover draft capital. I've... <laughs> what else is there to say? Yeah, I mean, so I, I want to get into talking a little bit more about the fit especially on the defensive side. I mean, you pretty much hit on everything offensively why I like it. The transition stuff. Like you have Siakam, one of the best transition finishers in the league, pairing up with the guy who is, you know, if not the best hit-ahead passer in the game, I would say at least the most prolific hit-ahead passer in the game. Like the guy who is always, always looking up the floor, whether it's off a steal, a defensive rebound, or whether it's off an opposing make. Like no team pushes off of makes to nearly the extent that the Pacers do. Their average time to shot after opposing uh, made baskets is like by far the fastest in the league. And I just think Siakam really excels in early offense, whether it's transi- transition, semi-transition, or just like getting down the floor and getting early seals. And I think he's just going to have so many opportunities to feast in early offense playing with Halliburton. And just the fact, like, you look at – I know the three-point shooting is what it is. Like, he's shooting 31, maybe 32% this year on pretty low volume. That's right around where he's at for his career. But he's shooting 58% from two-point range, and that is while operating inside a phone booth in Toronto with just not nearly the same spacing that he's going to have in Indiana. I, I do think – Maybe thinking like, okay, 58% in like minimal spacing in Toronto, like put him in spacing in Indiana and that could jump up to like 65% or something crazy like that. 
I think that's overstating it a bit just because I do think what Siakam excels at is like operating in those tight spaces, finding these micro advantages, you know, operating out of the post, hitting bunnies and sort of turnarounds and push shots from that in-between zone. It's going to be interesting to see like how he adapts, frankly, to playing in all this space to, you know, having some possessions where like the paint is solely his domain, not having other bodies to kind of run into and bounce off of as he's trying to get to his spots. I'm fascinated to see that because, you know, the Raptors, for one thing, never really tapped into his utility as a role, like as a ball screener and a role man. And part of that is him. Like he hasn't always been the most enthusiastic or the most solid screen setter. Um, But the, you know, also the Raptors, I guess, they did it a bit like when they had uh, Kyle and Fred, but like in recent years, they just haven't really had the guards to to play that sort of two-man game with him when he's on the screening end of the pick and roll. You know who I think he'll be enthusiastic to screen for? <laughs> Tyrese Alberton? I think so. Well, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, something I said on Twitter, which I, I don't know how firmly I believe it, but I kind of do, is that I... I have a hunch that the two-man game between him and Buddy Heald is actually going to be more dangerous than the two-man game with him and Halliburton, at least in the half court. Because where we've really seen Pascal excel in the past is as a ball handler in, in inverted ball screen action with guard screeners who are, you know, whether they're setting the screen or ghosting out and flaring out to the three-point line, a guy who has three-point gravity who is going to force the defense into a really tough decision because they don't want to switch a small one to Pascal. He will cook smalls on switches. So they got to decide if they're going to give that switch, if they're going to drop a small guy back, if they're going to put two on the ball, and that's going to open up that pass to the guard screener or the ghost screener flaring out to the three-point line. And so plugging Buddy Heald into that role, you know, arguably the best movement shooter that Pascal will have ever played with, I just think that's why I'm like, it seems like even on the offensive end where you don't think that the Pacers need a lot of help because they're the most efficient offense in NBA history right now. It still just feels like such a seamless fit because they use guard screens more than probably any team outside of Oklahoma city. I think Caitlin Cooper had this stat. They actually set like the most non-contact screens in the NBA. And that's just like an ideal environment for Siakam to thrive in with the kinds of with the kinds of ghost screeners that they can use in the actions that he likes best. Yeah, and while someone like on a surface level might say, well, you know, the most efficient offense of all time doesn't need another score or another, you know, 20 plus a night guy, but on a deeper level, Pascal Siakam's scoring and like offensive skills bag actually is a nice compliment to what the Pacers do and don't do because yes, the Pacers are a more modern offense that very pace in space and in addition to the speed and there's threes like to take, you know, the highest percentage shots and the highest efficiency, efficiency shots. But guess what? It's still nice to have a guy who's efficient and butters his bread in the areas of the floor where defenses actually want you to shoot from, where they're forcing you to try to shoot from, when in the playoffs, when defenses are much better and are zoned in on you, not literally zoned, you know what I mean, like focused in on you, but Pascal Siakam can do that. You mentioned 58% inside the arc. Anyone who's watched them over the years knows about his kind of craftiness and ability to create for himself in that 
mid-range area, around the basket. He brings a dynamic the Pacers didn't have before. And I think that is a really important part of this and a nice compliment for them. And then to be able to do that while still doing it efficiently, right? Like we're not talking about a guy who lives in the mid-range and his efficiency suffers because of it, especially not this year. Obviously got less of the ball in Darko Ryakovich's systems. Usage went down. You can argue that's why his uh, efficiency went up, but that's only going to be doubly so in Indiana playing with Tyrese Halliburton. With less touches, he's still averaging about 22 points and five assists on 60% true shooting. And I think he'll do just fine from an efficiency standpoint within this offense with this superstar guard beside him with a Rick Carlisle at them. Like, I, I think yeah. I think it's going to be a home run. Like, it's already a home run just on paper. I think it's going to be a home run in practice as well on the court. And I'm really excited to see what Pascal looks like in this system and what the Pacers look like with a guy like Pascal beside Tyrese Halliburton because they haven't had one before. Yeah, and to your point about the kind of like how things change in the playoffs and what you need to combat those dialed in defenses, it is, you know, I, I could see maybe a little bit of a clash in terms of, hey, the Pacers are very like rim and three point oriented. They don't have a lot of mid range in their diet. That's where Siakam likes to operate from. He's also a bit more sort of ponderous in the half court, like, likes to take his time, chisel his way to his spots. I think he'll have to do less of that given how much more space there will be. Like, I think he'll just be able to make quicker moves and quicker decisions and get to the rim easier. But to your point, that skill set is still going to be really valuable for them when the game inevitably grinds down in a playoff or a playoff adjacent setting. And the ability to just sort of manufacture buckets for like yourself or your teammates from the middle of the floor becomes so valuable. And I think they're going to really benefit from having that skill set, even if it doesn't seem like it jives perfectly with what they're currently doing. I actually think zagging a little bit there and adding that element that they didn't have is super important. And that's to say nothing of the fact that like go back to the in-season tournament final and what the Lakers did to scheme Halliburton out of the game. They didn't scheme him out of the game. He wound up with 20 and 10 because he's just that good where like even when the opposing game plan is keyed in on just like taking the ball out of his hands, he can still get his numbers. But they were face guarding him. They were trapping him in the backcourt. They had really aggressive pick and roll coverages that were getting the ball out of his hands. And in spite of how good the Pacers offense has been all season, And in spite of how many great play finishers they have, there's not, or there wasn't a ton of like secondary creation here behind Halliburton, right? And I think now they're in a position where if an opponent is sort of game planning to just get the ball out of Halliburton's hands, they've got a guy who can very capably initiate possessions. You know, if Halliburton's getting face guarded and he's just sort of like out of the play, you've got a guy who can orchestrate in four on four scenarios or four on three scenarios very capably. And then it's like, he can similarly just slide to that off ball role where he's a second side attacker, extending advantages that Halliburton's creating. When Halliburton's off the floor, again, uh, the Pacers offense has dipped by almost 11 points per hundred possessions. Siakam is certainly going to help keep those lineups afloat offensively. Uh, I just think there's so much to like about it. And that's just on offense. Um, we haven't talked about the defense, which is maybe the more important consideration here. And I actually don't, 
I don't know how much he's going to improve their defense. Like that's kind of the biggest question in all of this to me, because in theory, it makes a lot of sense as a floor raising defensive fit. And I do think there are some concrete ways, like things that I can point to where I'm like, he, he very much should help in this regard. But because of some of the defensive regression we've seen from him in the last couple of years, in a couple of different areas, I'm also like not entirely sold that this is just going to make them a league average defense. Um, what, what do you think about the defensive fit and how, how that changes the equation for them? I think he improves their defense because I think he gives them obviously more versatility, a guy that can guard bigger forwards, can switch, um, secondary rim protector beside Turner. Like I, All of that helps. I think they'll be better than the 27th ranked defense, but how much better? I don't know. Like I mentioned, I think for the last month or so, they've been like a league average, maybe just below league average defensive team. Can they be something between that and 27th? Like, can they be like 19th, 20th with Siakam in the fold? I don't know. Even that, that's like, that's a big jump. But if they can, if they can inch up to like, you know, go from terrible to just below average and regular bad on the defensive end with how potent their offense is, that's a team with some different possibilities for the rest of this year. But like I said, when I was like talking earlier, I, I like the fit obviously defensively, but I don't think Pascal Siakam single-handedly is going to like revolutionize this defense. I still don't think their defense is good enough. Good, good enough to you like win multiple playoff series. I a hundred percent agree with, um, you know, good enough to make a second half push, claim one of those top six seeds and then potentially win a first round series, or at least, put up a spirited fight in the first round? I think yes, and I don't know that I would have said that before. So, to me, I mean, the problem boils down to they have had this power forward size hole in their starting lineup all season. They started out the season with Obi Toppin in that spot. They have tried Jalen Smith in that spot. They've tried sliding Aaron Neesmith up to that spot. They basically tried all three options in terms of like going small with Neesmith, who's a bruiser, but is also six, five going big with Jalen Smith, who, you know, is very tall, but not especially proficient defensively. And then sort of splitting the difference with Obi Toppin, who is like actual power forward size, but has his own sort of defensive limitations in terms of the way he moves his feet and the way that he rebounds maybe more than anything. So that has contributed to all of these cascading problems for them. One of which is like, just in terms of individual matchups, they have no good individual matchups for like big playmaking forwards, right? Like we have seen numerous times them put Buddy Heald on Giannis Antetokounmpo on purpose. And whether it's like Giannis, whether it's like Jason Tatum, um, you know, a Jimmy Butler, guys like that, it's just they just haven't had a good individual answer for those types of players. And it's not like locking down big wings in isolation has ever been Pascal's greatest strength as a defender. But in terms of just like his positional size, coupled with his ability to move his feet, like he just instantly is the best option for those types of assignments and better than anything exactly the Pacers have had uh, up to this point. So that's one thing. 
And then the theoretical thing that I'm curious to see if it translates into reality, because this is where I think Siakam's fallen off defensively the hardest, is like the backline help, the low man work, the secondary rim protection that Indiana so desperately needs behind Miles Turner. They haven't had that. It's a big part of the reason they're like pretty intent on keeping him close to the basket, playing those pick and rolls two on two, rather than maybe like mixing up their coverages, bringing him up to the level and trusting that they have enough of a safety net behind him. Can Siakam give them that? That's what I'm really curious to see. Cause he just hasn't been the same guy in that regard since like 2021. But if he can, with maybe like a reduced offensive workload and some added motivation, get somewhere closer to that level, that is such a game changer for them. And we, you know, we've talked a ton about just like Indiana's interior defense. It's been like performance art this season because some of it's by design. Like their scheme is designed to limit three-pointers at all costs, which means staying home, not sending a ton of help. Even in a lot of the mismatches that they invite, uh, because of just like their weird wing defense problem, they still don't send a ton of help. They kind of roll out a red carpet to the rim and say, yeah, these are the shots we'll invite in, in the interest essentially of like limiting three point attempts. But I think that they are still going to be happy to have like another active big body on the back line. The other big thing is rebounding. They're 26 in defensive rebound rate and that comes down to a lot of things, one of which is like Turner has never been a great defensive rebounder for a center. Uh, Toppin, as I mentioned, is like a really poor defensive rebounder for his size. But it's also like they're inviting all these shots at the rim and Turner's jumping out to contest a bunch of them. And when that happens, they're not doing a good job of sort of boxing out and uh, rebounding behind him. And Pascal is a good rebounder. Like he is not like, you know, an elite box out guy. But I think he's solid enough and he's very long. He's got a seven foot three wingspan and that just sort of allows him to corral a lot of rebounds in traffic. If you look at the sort of on off numbers, the last three years, his impact, his positive impact on the Raptors defensive rebound rate has been 95th percentile, 88th percentile, and then this year 96th percentile. So he is a guy who when he steps on the court improves his team's defensive rebounding and if he can do that, uh, you know, coupled with maybe some secondary rim protection, then maybe we can start to see the Pacers nudge up into like league average territory because Turner remains a, an exceptional primary rim protector. And Neesmith is really, really solid at guarding on the wing. As long as he's not having to guard guys who are like three, four inches taller than him. You know, Nemhard is a, a really smart team defender Obviously, Halliburton is going to get targeted, but maybe they have enough now to insulate him better than they have up to this point. So, yeah, I could see that making enough of a difference that, like, maybe we're talking about the last couple months of the season, they're, like, 17th or 18th defensively instead of, like, 25th, 26th, maybe. That feels like the best-case scenario, but that would be a huge, huge step forward. Yeah, because, again, if they're just slightly below average to league average on the defensive end with what this offense already was, let alone when you add Siakam to it, that is a team that can all of a sudden make noise in the playoffs. At the end of the day, look, they're, so they're on pace for 47 wins right now, and they're seventh in the East. The funny thing is, I could see them finishing right around there, and like still just finishing right around there, high 40s, and right on the cusp of like being 
in the top six and in the plan. But the difference after this trade is that they are much better equipped to play in the postseason, whether that means having to start in the plan, whether that means being in the top six, whatever. They are much more equipped to compete once there than they were yesterday. And that's big. No doubt. Um, so yeah, I mean, for all those reasons, I just love the fit and um, I'm happy for them that they made this deal. I'm excited to watch what he looks like there and what this team looks like with him in the fold. Yeah, you'd have to be a clown to not like this fit for Indiana and Pascal Siakam. Uh, speaking of the clown side of this trade, let's take the break. <sighs> Come back and talk about the Raptors. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolf, on now to the other half of this trade. I think you hit the nail on the head when you tweeted yesterday that the Raptors did pretty well under the circumstances, but those circumstances were self-imposed, which is essentially what I wrote about yesterday in examining how selling low on Siakam kind of encapsulates the Raptors' slow decline from their championship and model franchise heights. Now, a lot, a lot of our app readers vehemently push back on the notion of this constituting selling low. Uh, many people on Twitter have pushed back against the notion that what the Raptors could have got four to six months ago in the offseason or a year ago or whatever is relevant in this discussion. But to all of those people, I say, well, I appreciate your reading or headline reading, but you're still your all-important clicks, your taps, your social media interactions, whatever. You are missing the entire goddamn point and definition of selling low. They let an asset depreciate to the point of having to sell it at a reduced rate. That is literally the definition of selling low. Just because at this point in time, this might have been the best they could do from doesn't change the fact that the fact they let it get to that point is the definition of selling low. They sold low on Pascal Siakam. There is no way to look at how this situation played out, how the Siakam situation played out over the last year without thinking they botched it and sold low. And that doesn't have to mean that the sky is falling now and everything sucks. We'll get to it, but I do think there's reason for optimism here when it comes to the Raptors. It's just, if we're strictly looking at this deal, what they got for Pascal Siakam, for the player that he is right now, and for letting it get to a point where this was the best they could do, it's trash. <laughs> Given that every credible report has been that Siakam's preference was to stay in Toronto, I mean, I, like we can basically guarantee that he would have signed an extension had a max level offer been tabled. And, you know, Masai Ujiri said before the season, he just wanted to see what a more unselfish version of the Raptors and, you know, Siakam could look like first. The fact that such an offer never came was a clear indication that the team wasn't convinced Siakam would be worth max money into his 30s. And again, as I've said before, that is a fair and fine assessment of a non-shooting forward. But it only makes the front office's decision-making more perplexing. Because if you're following along here, Toronto was no longer sold on Siakam as a max player going forward. Knew that Siakam wanted a full-term max. Knew they were going into a developmental season centered around Scotty Barnes. And knew they had hired a coach whose new offensive system was probably going to somewhat limit Siakam's role within that offense. And they still held on to him. 
going into that season rather than trading him with a full year left on his contract, which obviously suppressed his value on the market. Like, you don't need sources or a goddamn economics degree to understand that. And in the end, they ended up trading a two-time All-NBAer, still in his prime, one of the five or six best players in franchise history, for three middling first-rounders and mostly salary filler. Like, in what world is that not selling low or trading him for pennies on the dollar? Uh, yeah. Are you done? I mean, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we've already talked about the like the you know crappy value of most of these picks. Like you said it last night on Media Row, right? Not all firsts are created equal. Two late firsts in a terrible draft, and then a top four protected twenty twenty six Pacers first. Is you know that 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 twenty twenty six Pacers first is arguably the best asset in this deal. But with Halliburton there, if Siakam resigns, like I know what you were saying earlier. I know anything can happen. Obviously, injuries, weirdness, et cetera. You never know. But like, I mean, I wouldn't bet on that pick being great, you know? So like, it's still something. And the, like, they do now have more draft capital, more cap flexibility to build around a young Barnes line core that also includes quickly a rejuvenated Barrett, maybe Grady Dick. Like, I get it. Like I said, there's reason for optimism. Two things can be true. There is reason for optimism going forward now with this new Barnes-led future where the Raptors have finally committed to this lane and ripped the Band-Aid off, that can be true. While it's also true that the package they got for Pascal Siakam is painfully underwhelming, and it's their own fault because they backed themselves into a corner where this was, I guess, the best they could do. Now I'm done. Yeah, I mean, put it this way. They traded a better draft pick in the top six protected pick they sent to the Spurs last year for Jakob Pertl, who was also on an expiring deal, by the way, than any pick they got in exchange for Pascal Siakam. I think that right there just sort of frames these two bookending deals that have marked what I would call a sort of fallow period for this Raptors front office. Now, I really liked the return they got for OG. Loved it. It was much better than I thought they would do. And that salvages this to some extent. And, you know, look, if they wind up hitting on one of those picks, then this all looks very different. And, uh, I mean, you know, Siakam himself was a 27th overall pick who people didn't think much of when he got drafted. So I'm not saying it can't happen even in a draft class that everyone's saying is no good. There are always diamonds in the rough, hidden gems, a couple all-stars at least in every draft class, even the ones that everybody wants to designate as being very weak. And so maybe they turn those picks into something and this looks different, but I don't know. They also drafted Malachi Flynn, 28th overall or 29th overall a few years back. It's like, if you are looking at the projected value of a pick in that range, typically it's a whole lot closer to Malachi Flynn than it is to Pascal Siakam. So I just couldn't believe, even with their limited leverage, and again, it's their own doing, but even with their limited leverage in the position they were in, I couldn't believe that they couldn't get one of these young Pacers players, whether it was Nemhard, Neesmith, Matherin, heck, even Toppin. You know, like, I just, I'm sort of shocked that they couldn't get a single one of those guys. And look, you know, I like Bruce Brown, and we can talk about the interesting decision, I guess, that they have to make now about whether to keep him or flip him. I think there's a compelling case to be made in either direction. But for them to not get any of those guys, especially after they basically made it known 
that in these negotiations for both Pascal and OG, they were prioritizing players over picks because they're not thinking super long-term right now. They see what Scotty is turning into and they're like, we feel like we can be competitive as early as next season. So that's why they wanted quickly and Barrett. And I thought that was the right decision. And I don't know, I, I, I wasn't, you know, privy to those negotiations. So maybe this was never discussed. Maybe it was never on the table, but you know, if Nemhard gets thrown into that deal and two first rounders disappear as a result, I would have been totally fine with that, especially given the, the, you know, the mandate that they had set out for themselves seemingly. So I just, you know, to get these three middling first rounders and a player that maybe they'll flip now, maybe they'll flip later, maybe they'll keep, I don't know, but like for that to be the return for their homegrown all nba -er, is is very underwhelming and at that point and i've been saying this for a while at that point i think i just would have extended him and seen what they could do with this group and if it didn't work out tried to flip him down the road like people want to say well he wouldn't have been tradable on a max deal but guess what the pacers are about to sign him exactly. to the max deal that the raptors didn't exactly. want to sign him to yeah. so you can't tell me that there wouldn't have been teams interested in trading for him on that contract down the road. That's that just doesn't pass muster to me. You know what else helps if he's on a new deal? Teams aren't scared away as scared away by how willing he is to play for them. Cause he's on a contract. Well, yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly it. So if, if this is, if these were the offers you were getting with him on an expiring deal, then yeah, I would have just extended him seen if the offers improved or if the team improved and looked more functional. Like I do think the fit issues with him and Scotty are not entirely made up. Yeah. You know, that is a real thing. And they're that that's the biggest reason probably that it made sense to trade him. But I think you also traded a very, very good player. Like you mentioned a top 30 player in the league for, you know, nickels on the dollar, let's say. All right, fair. Yeah, not pennies. You don't want fine. to say pennies. Nickels. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'd still call it pennies, but I'll, I'll accept nickels. But, like, you mentioned Neesmith, Nembard, and Matherin. Like, okay, fine. Couldn't get one of them. But, like, you know, our guy Will Lou made a good point yesterday on Media Row, too. It's like you couldn't get Jarris Walker. Like, Pascal Siagma was literally now going to be blocking Jarris Walker, and you still couldn't convince the Pacers to give him. Heck, okay, fine. You couldn't get Walker because he's a – you know, a, a guy, highly touted rookie they just drafted in the top 10 last year. You couldn't get Nembard. You couldn't get Neesmith. You couldn't get Matherin. You can't even get me a Ben Shepard? Like, come on, man. Like, what? How? How did this happen? I, you know, like, I wrote yesterday that it, it's not just the Raptors' ability to identify and maximize talent that's fallen off. It's that the same shrewd decision makers who relentlessly chased the championship somehow became paralyzed by indecision and mediocrity. And that is all part of how they got to this point. But I was, I was thinking about it last night while I was dreaming of those Halliburton to Siakam hit ahead passes. I was thinking about how while those things are still true to me, I think more than anything with this Raptors front office, it's that they kind of just lost their sense of timing. Like even going back to the Pirtle deal last year, which I know we've talked a lot about over the last year, but that particular deal in a vacuum isn't even that bad. But it was the timing that was the issue, right? Like it was obvious they needed a legit big going into the season, but they started the season without one. It's part of how they hamstrung Nick Nurse with that roster. But then by the time they decided to actually address that issue, they were four games under 500 in February on the fast track to nowhere, and they needed to be a seller, but they traded a future first for like an average starter. Like, the Pirtle deal, 
the entire Siakam situation, what happened with Fred, and I know you can argue, look, the, the OG thing worked out, and that's fine, okay, but that was one thing out of many here. Like, when you start putting it all together, I think that's probably the main criticism. Yes, the scouting and development seems to have fallen off somewhat. They've maybe regressed in other areas, but I think it's like that sense of timing really seems to have abandoned them. Yeah, and it's like you look at how this deal shook out, and it really does just speak to how little leverage they ultimately had. But what winds up happening is because the Pacers need to add in one more salary to make the money work and are so intent on keeping all of their young prospects, Kyra Lewis ends up being a throw-in from the Pelicans. That helps the Pelicans get under the luxury tax. In exchange for that, they send out a second-round pick, and that second-round pick goes to Indiana. So Indiana benefits from this, the Pelicans benefit from this, and the Raptors, for facilitating this deal, get Kyra Lewis, who, as a change-of-scenery guy, look, I I was actually, like, coming into the league intrigued by just his speed, right? Like, yep, I, I, really- I was, you know, sort of high on him, and, like, then he just – it didn't round out the rest of his game, like around that one standout skill and also kept getting injured. And that's probably had, I haven't watched a ton of him recently, I'll admit, but I would imagine all those injuries have had a diminishing effect on that explosiveness. And it's like, I don't know, maybe they get a look at him and and see if he's somebody they want to keep, but it just feels like a throw in that they allowed to happen so that the Pacers didn't have to put one of the players they actually liked on the table, and somehow the pick involved in that deal still winds up going to Indiana. It's tiny little marginal stuff like that that they used to nail that it feels like has fallen by the wayside. You know what I mean? Yep, exactly. And uh, yeah, like even, okay, Kyra Lewis, Jordan Nwora, like I'm like those are fine throw-ins and guys that especially for a team that even if they're going to be kind of trying to compete, is also obviously looking to the future. Like, I'm fine with taking a flyer on those guys, seeing if a change of scenery helps them, especially in the case of Kyra Lewis, who's basically become like a G League player now. But at the same time, like, yeah, they, they are just throw-ins. Like, they're, there's not that much excitement for me, like, to watch them. Or to, if, I don't even think they're going to be in the Raptors' rotation, barring something crazy happening. Like, I'd rather them, I'd rather see what Marquise Noel you know, of the Raptors who's playing in the G League right now looks like, and he's pretty much our goddamn size, you know, and I'd be willing to look at him in the NBA before Kyra Lewis again. I don't know. From a player perspective, it's obviously about Bruce Brown. And I think, look, it it is interesting because on one hand, he could be really valuable on the trade market as this great role player and recent champion with a team option for next year. Because if you remember that good Pacers deal we praised at the time in the summer where they, from a salary perspective, overpaid to acquire Bruce Brown, but it made so much sense for them as a cap space team who wasn't going to get something better than him. So now Brown can be an expiring, or he could have one more year left from a team control perspective if a team's willing to pay him whatever it is, like $22 million next year. There's options there, and I think that makes him a pretty attractive trade target for contenders ahead of the deadline. So the Raptors could definitely move him and probably get something out for him. And in that way, they could squeeze a little more out of the Siakam return, make it look a little better. Um, but uh, he also, you know, as a do-it-all role player with defensive versatility, heady off-ball game, he could serve as a really important connector for Ryakovich's Raptors. So I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say what I'd rather 
happen without knowing what kind of offers would could be on the table for Bruce Brown. I guess you know you can get a first round pick. I guess you probably do it. I feel like you could probably get a first round pick for him given everything we said. But if not, if the, if the deals aren't there, I'd be more than happy to see how he looks as a connector in this uh, you know movement heavy system that Darko Ryakovic has employed and and seeing how he can help connect the dots between Barnes and Quickly and Barrett. Yeah, I kind of really do like his fit. I think yeah. the Raptors need some more point of attack defense. I think they need more downhill pressure. He brings both. And I wouldn't be in a rush necessarily to trade him. People are going to look at this Raptors roster and where they're at in the standings before their shocking demolition of the heat last night. They were tied with Memphis for the sixth best lottery odds. They basically have no shot at getting up to five. Like that top five is locked. I'd say they so, almost have no shot of getting to the top six because Memphis, as though they've won their last two games, like that team, yeah. on, it's just not going to be able to win many games with all. It's those insanely depleted right yes. now, and try as Vince Williams is doing, try as he might, I just don't think he's going to be able to carry that team for that much longer. So yeah, even out tanking the Grizzlies to get that number six spot is going to take some doing. And even if they do that and they finish number six in lottery odds, they only have a 45% chance of actually staying in the top six and keeping their top six protected pick. So I don't think it really makes sense to go the tanking route. No, Tanking to me is only going to come into effect if it's like the last couple weeks of the season and them and Memphis are close. Yeah. And then you could justify like, let's shut everybody down. Let's, lose as many games as possible and at least give give ourselves the best possible chance of keeping that pick. But otherwise, I think you just see what you have. You know, you turn the keys over to Scotty and quickly and RJ and you see where it goes. And in that sense, Bruce Brown could really help them. He could yes. help them chase the the nine seed and, you know, be a, a feisty play in team. I do think if you can get a first rounder for him, you take it. You know, as long as it's like a, a real first and not a fake first that's like heavily protected and then going to convert to two seconds or a late first in 2024. (laughs) Yeah. So he's got this team option at 23 million for next year. I think in that case, if you do wind up keeping him because the Raptors now can open up like 30 plus million dollars of cap space, right? Like that's, that's part of the direction they decided to go here. They could have been able to do that anyway. If they'd done a deal with like the Warriors, for example, and taken Chris Paul's salary back, they still could have opened up the cap space. Um, but ideally in that scenario would have gotten like a Moses Moody or somebody like that. So they, they can have cap space to sign who I'm not sure. It's not a particularly inspiring free agent class. Uh, Malik Monk is a guy that I've loved for them for a while. Maybe they can go after him. Yeah. I think there's also a chance they could canvas the market, you know, do their, their due diligence and realize Actually, even at $23 million, Bruce Brown is better than anything we could get yeah. in free agency. Let's keep him for another year, and then he's an expiring that we could have as a trade chip for the following season. You know, I think there are some interesting possibilities with what they could do with him. That when that's all said and done, maybe this trade winds up looking a little bit better yep. than it does now. But I'm still going to be scratching my head and feeling very frustrated on their behalf that they couldn't get one of those. I mean, they're not even blue chip prospects, these Pacers guys. Like, they're all intriguing for different reasons, but 
you know, Matherin, Nemhard, Jairus Walker, like these, I I wouldn't (laughs) consider, maybe Jairus Walker, you could say is like a blue chipper, but to not get any of those guys. Dude, I was joking, but like Ben Shepard who can shoot like, you know, and there's not really a place for him in the Pacers rotation. Like I I was kind of joking when you couldn't even get a Ben Shepard, but in all honesty, like out of their five, six, however many it is kind of intriguing, seemingly tradable youngsters, he's at the bottom of that list, but he would still be a very intriguing guy for the Raptor, like recent first round pick can shoot not in the rotation there. Like you couldn't even get that guy as an intriguing young guy. Who's like the worst of their seemingly tradable young players. I don't know, man. It's, it's my, and this is why it's all like, look, I, the optimism I talked about with the Raptors and, and picking a direction, like I'm, I'm all for it. And I honestly believe even just in the short term, they can be a fun, exciting young team the rest of the year. Doesn't mean it'll translate to a lot of wins. But they can stick in the play-in race, maybe get in the play-in. Like you said, be feisty if they keep Bruce Brown. Like, I'm all for all that and what the future could hold with Scotty Barnes leading the way and quickly in there and RJ and all this stuff. But none of that changes my thoughts on this deal. Like, they could catch fire the rest of the way and look especially great going forward into the future. And I can be more optimistic about the future a month from now, but it still wouldn't change the fact that I think they botched the Siakam situation over the last year in getting to a point where this was the best they could do. Yeah, I fully agree. And uh, if they couldn't have found a trade that they liked last year or in the off season, again, I think they should have just extended him. And I don't know if at a certain point that just became untenable because the relationship had been fractured because of the way that they have, you know, treated him, alienated him basically since the way last season ended for them. But that that's the route that I would have gone uh, instead of doing this. But look, they've been moving toward this direction, I guess, for a while where it seemed like Barnes was going to be the guy they prioritized. They were going to build around him. We've been imploring them to pick a direction for so long. And at the very least, they have finally done that. And now they can start to move forward and build around Scotty and quickly, and maybe RJ too, with a lot more clarity. And so if nothing else, uh, I think that's, that's a positive step just to sort of make it very clear what exactly they're doing, uh, the timeline they're building on. And now that they've gotten this hurdle out of the way, I think other decision-making dominoes can start to fall in a way that serves their new franchise player. I think we've uh, done a good job here to keep this trade reaction pod under an hour, unless you have anything else to add. But one thing I I actually want to add, I guess on a more philosophical level, but something I stress to fans, not just Toronto-based fans here, but fans across the sports world and, and NBA fans, and we do this pod and I write, and I always stress about like how fans should enjoy and really soak it all in when they have a good team and how fans should never take success or sustain success for granted, right? Because especially sometimes when you are you have this great team you're rooting for and they're in the middle of a window of contention and you think it's just the good times are going to keep rolling and they've got these guys locked up long term. But like the fall is never far off and especially in the world of shorter contracts and the cap world and like player movement across, again, not just NBA, across the sports world, it can change quick. I remember like even as the Raptors were kind of getting good after Masai took over and like almost like not even believing what we were seeing. Cause you have to remember like before Masai Ujiri got there for the first 18 years of the Raptors existence, 
they had the fifth worst record over those 18 years in the NBA. Like they were a bottom five franchise from a win-loss perspective for eight, almost two decades. And in the first 10 years of the Masai Ujiri era, they won more games than anybody but the Golden State Warriors. And from like 2016 through the 2020 playoffs, only the Cavs and Warriors won more playoff games. Like the level of success that the Raptors had achieved and with this core that has now basically officially finally been broken up and the chapters been like page has been turned over, except for Chris Boucher, who barely played in that playoff run. Basically, what I'm trying to get at is that one thing I can actually say as someone, you know, born, raised, grew up in Toronto, loving Toronto sports, loving the Raptors, is that I'm happy and content with myself that I did never take it for granted. And I did actually enjoy it and soak it in the moment and realize that, you know, it doesn't last forever. And so I'm I'm happy that I did take it all in and enjoy it, and never take it for granted. And again, I stress to you, whether you're a Raptors fan listening to this, or a fan of whatever team listening, maybe you're sitting in Indiana, and you're a Pacers fan right now, excited about what's coming, like, don't take it for granted, soak it all in, enjoy it, be in the moment, because success in pro sports is fleeting. Usually you don't even get a run like the Raptors had with the, with the core that is now fully broken up. So, just a reminder, enjoy it. Let's go, Pacers Nation. Got to enjoy. <laughs> they're they're Joe Wolf the on Pacers again. Years, baby. We're back. They're back to being uh, Wolf on Pacers. Yeah, man. Cosign everything you said. Closing the book on an era of Raptors basketball that was truly special, truly memorable. Ha- hasn't been for the last couple of years, obviously, nah. but I think just something about seeing the sort of last piece of that championship puzzle go out the door makes it a good time to reflect on everything we've experienced, the highs and lows over the last decade of Raptors basketball. So let's see what's next. Let's see what you got, Scotty. Yeah, loved all the memes I'm seeing, like everyone posting the old, the slam cover with the, uh, you know, the defending champion Raptors, Sans Kawhi, the ones that won basically the equivalent of 60 games. Everyone's doing like different graphics where they're slowly disappearing. A lot of people are using like Chris Boucher on the Will Smith from Fresh Prince meme where he's like the last one left in the room. Um, and also shout out the No Dunks guys who put uh, a bunch of Raptors core moments to the tune of, you know, what's the song from Fast and Furious? It's been a long time. Since I've seen you, my friend, but I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. It's good stuff. Quality content across the board with respect to the Raptors core being broken up. Well, fun. You got anything else to add? No, sir. All right. I think uh, we'll get back to fan shout outs uh, next episode since it's kind of a special one. Uh, I've got, I think I have one or two banked. Hit us up. Got to get those fan shout outs out there. Other than that, I think uh, we're good till next week. That's another trade happens. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock. Not even a Ben Shepherd, for Christ's sake.